Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host George Hale from WFIU, WTIU News. Today we're talking about upcoming court decisions that could affect this year's presidential election and other matters that could be taken up by the Supreme Court. We have two guests joining us today. Steve Sanders is back with us. Steve is Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, Professor of Law, and Val Nolan Faculty Fellow for the IU Maurer School of Law here in Bloomington. And Dr. Laura Wilson is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Indianapolis and Research Associate for the Mike Downs Center for Indiana Politics. You can follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Noon Edition. You can send us your questions there. You can also send questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can join us on the air by calling 812-855-0811, or you can call us toll-free at 877-285-9348. Well, Laura Wilson, thanks for being back with us. It's been a while since we've had you on the air. It has. Thank you for having me. Sure. And Steve Sanders, you've been a regular lately. <laughs> Lots of things to talk about. So, Steve, I want you to, to just sort of frame our discussion. Um, let's talk about the cases that involve former President Donald Trump mm-hmm. first. Um, I read a couple things before uh, in preparation for the show. One talked about how this had, had looked like a fairly quiet session, but now it's suddenly a blockbuster session because of these new cases. Another, another site called it Momentous. What's, what are these cases about? Yeah, I uh, <clears throat> taught my first uh, couple of classes this week of constitutional law for first-year law students. And I said, you know, this semester there will be times when we have breaks from our regularly scheduled programming to talk about stuff that the Supreme Court is doing. There are three cases before the Supreme Court right now that in one way or the other directly bear on Donald Trump, either the federal prosecution or – Um, the federal and the state prosecution. The biggest, most amorphous, potentially most controversial case involves whether uh, President Trump is or should be disqualified from the ballot by virtue of of an until now fairly obscure provision of the 14th Amendment passed in the wake of the Civil War, which disqualifies anyone from holding office who has participated in or given aid and comfort to insurrection. So there's there's a lot to talk about there and what the court is likely to do. The second issue, um, which could be heading to the Supreme Court, it's just been argued this week in the D.C. Court of Appeals, is whether a president has immunity by virtue of having been president from being criminally prosecuted for acts that he performed during his presidency. The court um, decades ago established that the president has immunity from civil lawsuits for money damages for certain actions the president takes in his official capacity. But up until now, there's been no suggestion that there is immunity from criminal prosecution. And the third case uh, affects actually hundreds of people, not just President Trump, who uh, have been or are being prosecuted after January 6th. It it involves a fairly technical question about the interpretation of a particular federal criminal statute that the Justice Department has been using aggressively um, to charge people who participated in or were connected in some way with the January 6th riots. Okay. Laura Wilson, as a political science uh, professor, which ones of of these three cases – which one of these three cases really grabs you the most or are they all equal? 
Oh, well, I, I like the way you asked that question because I would say, looking from the, the political science perspective, and especially because, of course, it is a presidential election year, which is what makes these cases so fascinating. We have a former U.S. president who's running um, for election again, and of course, under so many legal questions and such scrutiny, I, I actually think it is, in a in a large sense, it's the combination of all of the legal questions. You have questions regarding the insurrection and um, ballot access, being able to appear on a ballot, Colorado, Maine, right? Other states that have looked at this question though haven't necessarily pursued it, like Michigan. Um, you have questions in terms of legal issues with regards to um, everything with the, the paperwork in Georgia, asking for more votes. I, I just think across the board, it's the combination of all of these. And for me, I, what's really interesting is not just how the Supreme Court decides it, but it's it's the impact of the voters. We have the Iowa caucuses coming up next week amid what might be the coldest temperatures on record for these. And voters are already making their decisions in terms of the Republican primaries and who they want to see. And, and even well, we could talk about this later. And it's a little bit different off the periphery. But even as Haley is starting to top DeSantis in Iowa and New Hampshire, they are still far trailing former President Donald Trump amid all of this legal scrutiny. And I, I think it is the question not just to the Supreme Court in terms of constitutionality and legality, but the question to the voters, right? What does this mean for voters? And in many ways, it's having so many challenges um, in different states, in different areas, in different facets. Right? And that's that is certainly what makes this presidential election cycle, in addition to the Supreme Court decisions um, that we expect to hear, so fascinating this year. Yeah, I want to we want to unpack a lot of that uh, later in the program. I want to get back to uh, one of these three, though, the insurrection mm -hmm. portion yeah. of it. Steve, this is really fascinating to me as a guy who you know deals in words all the time is, mm -hmm. is I mean, you, you hear people. Te like Republicans that support Trump testifying that this wasn't an insurrection. It was just a bunch mm -hmm. of tourists going through or whatever they want to say. Yeah. The, this law is going to – or this, this court decision, it seems, is going to hinge on was this an insurrection? How How is that determined? Yeah. Does somebody just say it was an insurrection? So – the vast majority of Supreme Court decisions on any subject, uh, the starting point is the volume of cases the Supreme Court has previously decided and how this current case either alters the trajectory of the law or you know, uh, how existing bodies of precedent and doctrine apply. This one is wide open. This is um, an area where historians and what are called legal originalists are really going to have their day. The way I can answer that is to say the, the leading academic article, the, the leading piece of scholarship on this question, the 14th Amendment's Insurrection Clause, was done by two scholars published uh, just within the last year or so. One of them has a local connection, Will Bode. He grew up in Bloomington. His parents were on the faculty of our law school. He now teaches at the University of Chicago. They did an extensive excavation of court cases, dictionaries, other political documents and accounts from around the time the 14th Amendment was adopted and the immediate time thereafter, the question becomes what would the word insurrection or giving aid and comfort to insurrection have meant to the people who wrote and approved that language in 1868 as part of the 14th Amendment because we have no court precedent that has drawn on that previously to rely on. And what I can tell you is that Bode and his co-author Michael Stokes Paulson, who are actually both Federalist Society, originalist, sort of moderate conservative law professors, they are not radicals or they're not, you know, uh, 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 Democrats even, um, their conclusion is that if you took the facts around what happened January 6th and the role that President Trump played in seemingly egging it on and supporting it and helping to generate it, that those events on January 6th would have fit the understanding of what an insurrection was and what it made, what it meant to give aid and comfort to an insurrection to the people who were alive and um, thinking and talking about that question in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. And so for, for legal 
scholars and judges who claim to be originalists and say, you know, we have to, we don't have a living constitution. We have to understand the constitution in terms of what it meant to the people who adopted it, the original intent, the original meaning, the original understanding. The 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 leading and, and certainly most detailed piece of scholarship on that question approaches the question from that perspective and says, it is inescapable that President Trump should be disqualified under that constitutional provision. Before I get to George, I, I want to follow up on that a little bit. Because of course, it's going to be the nine Supreme Court justices who determine mm-hmm. whether they, how they view that scholarship. Right. Right. And then, uh, Laura, we talked about this a little bit before the show, but but no matter what they decide on that issue, those those Supreme Court justices, there's going to be political fallout that's going to be pretty loud, don't you think? Oh, I, I absolutely think that. Um, and recent precedent in terms of public opinion polling has shown a tremendous decrease in how Americans view the favorability of the Supreme Court. And, and in a way, when you look at public opinion data uh, throughout time, and we've been keeping track of it for decades, albeit much better uh, in, in more recent times, but typically the Supreme Court had been heralded. The judicial system was supposed to be fair and neutral. Um, They were arbitrators of the law. They weren't supposed to be partisan or ideological. And when we're looking in terms of recent, and I I can use Gallup data as an example, recent public opinion data, they've fallen in in terms of 40% hovering around the 40, 41, 43% mark of Americans' approval. And I will say those numbers would make Congress very jealous as they tend to be in the teens, um, they've gone into single digits in recent memory. But uh, that those numbers are very low for the Supreme Court. And I think it does reflect a response um, with regards to the polarization of our country writ large, but also the impact of the decisions and the, the perception that there is a bias. There is um, no neutrality. There's a, an ideological influence and specifically a partisan one, which one could certainly argue historically that has always been present, but clearly it's being felt by the American public in a very different way. And I, I think to your point, absolutely, whatever the decision is, um, you are going to have roughly half the American public pretty outraged and upset by this decision. Um, you'll have a whole lot of people that think they are constitutional law scholars like Steve, even though really uh, many of them may have not gone to law school or and read and, and examined the Constitution that way. I, I think it is going to be a very polarized decision regardless of the outcome. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the outcome itself is not a fair or just interpretation of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so um, what I'm curious about is, you know, even if what as Steve was saying, what Trump did um, on January 6th maybe does meet the definition of an insurrection according to these scholars, are courts supposed to just decide on their own absent a prosecution or conviction in you know each each of these cases? Mm-hmm. Like in Colorado, I'm thinking of Colorado and Maine in particular. Yeah. Like um, you know, barring a candidate from from running yeah. based on what just some experts think is that isn't that a little well the the constitutional language you know I mean the criminal convictions existed at the time of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And if they, if the drafters of the 14th Amendment wanted to predicate something on a criminal con- conviction, they knew how to do so. They knew the language was available. But they didn't make that a condition of the language in the 14th Amendment. They, they you know, it's nowadays, it, it, it's harder for us to imagine, well, who, mm-hmm. who should have the final say? We have a much more developed legal system now with state officials and federal officials. But the language itself doesn't predicate um, removal, disqualification qualification on a criminal conviction, but it is also ambiguous. It doesn't exactly say who should make that decision either. Um, You know, any Supreme Court decision, I think, on a momentous question like this is not just a matter of pure law. There is almost always a, a, a prudential consideration. Is this the right time to do this? Is this the right case to do this? What are the consequences for us as a court and our legitimacy of doing this? And so, um, you know, some people would take, look, it's the court's job to just follow where the law goes. And in this case, this originalist scholarship 
you know, because there's nothing else to draw on, really should inform, I think, mm-hmm. the court's view. But, you know, there's an old saying that people, you know, say with a, a sense of irony, let justice be done, though the heavens fall. You know, do we, you know, do we want the heavens to fall if, if the court does what some people might think is the right thing here? So that's to say there's a lot of room for the court to say, you know, you know, there is no precedent for this. There are too many unanswered questions. Yes, we have a couple of scholars, but there are people on the other side who have made arguments as well. And, um, you know, this is, you know, we don't have enough information to believe that this is the way this provision should have applied, or they might even affirmatively, majority might even say, no, we disagree. This is not what the framers intended. Mm -hmm. So, there's, there's a lot of room here for the court to exercise a sort of prudential judgment based on the impact of the decision and the perception of their role as well. When you talk about the impact of the decision, I'm, I'm curious, do you think, uh, will this be a case of nine separate justices deciding how they view this? Or could Chief Justice Roberts have any sway in trying to say, I I don't want the court that I'm the chief justice of, the Roberts Court, Mm -hmm. be the one that makes a decision like this. Well, it's certainly been part of his MO to try to do that in controversial cases, to try to unify the court, to try to downplay the divisions. Over the decades that he's now been chief justice, he has sometimes had some success at that, but other times not had success at that. With the abortion decision a year and a half ago, he found himself a bit on the outside. You know, he, he the, the, the conservative majority, the five other conservative justices went farther than he was willing to go and he wasn't able to persuade them to kind of slow down and take a more modest tack in striking down Roe versus Wade. So I think it, it, it really depends on how strongly passions are going to be felt at the court and how strongly people, uh, uh, members of the court see the evidence here. I, I think it's possible that in a case this momentous, though, that there will be a a greater likelihood that the chief justice will be able to pull his colleagues together and say, we can't be hugely divided. And I think there's some possibility that, you know, someone like Justice Kagan or Justice Jackson might go along with the majority opinion if they if they get cold feet, if they simply, you know, look, I'm going to put my view on the table. I think, you know, if 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 he qualifies for dis, you know, if he should be disqualified, he should be disqualified. But it's easy for me to say that. I, I, I think that it's possible that, you know, justices are just going to get cold feet and decide this is not the time or the place to decide this question. All right. We're talking about uh, what could be some momentous and blockbuster decisions by the Supreme Court. We have two guests, Steve Sanders from the Maurer School of Law and Laura Wilson, from a political science professor from the University of Indianapolis. And uh, if you want to join us on the program, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also Send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can even follow us on X, formerly Twitter, at Noon Edition. I want to ask about this immunity case as well. Uh, We hear a lot of people talk about, on both sides of the aisle, I mean, I I was watching some in the newsroom. There are two TVs in there, and it's really interesting. There are five, but there were two. One of them had um, CNN. One of them had Fox News. One of them had the Trump hearing. One of them had Hunter Biden. It was, of course, interesting to see. But you could hear out of both of those sides, nobody's above the law, Mm -hmm. right? So I just want to understand this immunity case, which seems to be saying the former former presidents are above the law, that Mm -hmm. they don't have to follow the law. Um, Steve, you can start on that, and then Laura, maybe you can chime in. Yeah, I, I mean, Hunter Biden is not has never been a public official. So I think his issue is, you know, off, sort of off to the side. But let's start from the idea that the Supreme Court has recognized since the late 1970s, early 1980s, a case called Nixon versus Fitzgerald, which involved then out of office, President Richard Nixon, that the president uniquely in our system do, is entitled to some immunity. Here was the logic that we don't want a president, you know, presidents are faced with, you know, impossible, life-altering you know, decisions that they have to make that often have grave consequences for people's rights and freedom and lives. And, um, you know, yes, sometimes they might make mistakes, but, um, you know, if they, oper- if they make a decision in good faith, 
um, they should not be able to be sued for that. And so in this case, Nixon versus Fitzgerald, the court said when it comes to civil lawsuits, that is seeking monetary damages from somebody, the president has an absolute immunity from civil liability when the president is carrying out his official responsibilities. It didn't mean anything you do while occupying the office, you're immune, but if you take an action pursuant to your presidential duties that injures or harms someone, that's just the price we pay for a president who has to make difficult decisions every single day. And the courts shouldn't be in the position of second guessing that. But again, there, there was never a suggestion in that decision that the same rule would apply to criminal immunity. That, that you know, criminal liability, committing a criminal act in the course of your official duties. I mean, it should be, you know, sort of oxymoronic to say, you know, I'm carrying out my official duties as president, but that requires me to violate the law or, or, or create a criminal act. But that's, that's the logic here that just as there is civil immunity, there should also be freedom from criminal prosecution, that the president has to be free to do controversial things. And Again, there's sort of two issues here. One, should there be an immunity at all from criminal prosecution? And second, if there is, did what Trump did um, qualify as part of his official duties? And, and courts that have considered that question up until now and, and, and legal briefs have, have said no. You know, yeah, yeah, he occupied the office of president, but he doesn't get immunity because what he was doing was electioneering and self-serving, not carrying out his duties as president. All right. Laura? Well, I, I love that you mentioned the Fitzgerald case because I was thinking it's a little bit different, privilege versus immunity, but United States versus Nixon, the 1974 landmark mm -hmm. Supreme Court decision, again, a time when the stakes felt like they could not be higher, uh, but basically uh, the Supreme Court saying that the president was not above the law and he couldn't use executive privilege to withhold evidence in terms of a criminal trial. And of course, privilege being different, you know, in with regards compared to immunity, but also looking at the timing. So I appreciate this, the conversation, none of this is happening in a vacuum. And the stakes being incredibly high, coinciding with the presidential election, in which the former president who is under uh, these legal questions, this cloud of legal doubt, is running as a candidate uh, with the federal trial court, you know, that determined he wasn't above the law, he could be prosecuted for his actions, and was looking at the timing. You're, you're talking about a March trial, which is at the thick of the primary elections. And of course, with the Iowa caucuses next week, then we'll go to New Hampshire, South Carolina, and they, the ball really gets rolling. He could be at that point not just the lead presidential candidate for the Republicans, which he is um, at this point in terms of polling, but without actually primary data voting um, and election results. But he might be among the very few left standing. And so I, I think that's where the presidential immunity is complicated even further, because it's not just what happened. And of course, that's what the court will be looking at and examining and making a decision uh, but the implications are just undeniable. And when you're talking about high stakes and, and the pressure, this really is the timing. Um, it, it feels like they couldn't be higher. I, I would say there is, if the Supreme Court is just feeling there's a little too much on their plate right now, there is a way they could duck this in the sense of, so we just had arguments this week in the Court of Appeals, the court you go to on your way to the Supreme Court about the immunity issue. And it, it seemed clear to most observers that the three judges on that panel were not sympathetic to President Trump's argument. So presuming that the uh, Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia rules against the immunity claim, in theory, the Supreme Court could simply say, could simply say, you know, we're just going to let that decision stand. We're not going to vacate the decision and take it up and re-decide it ourselves, um, uh, you know, from, from the get-go. So they, they could do that. They could simply say, eh, we're satisfied that the Court of Appeals thought about this and did a good job and we're not inclined to disturb it. George? So if the courts were to rule in his favor, maybe you could just elaborate a little bit about what that would mean um, for the president's power and our position in the power in the Constitution. Like, what does that change our understanding of 
everything? Well, I, I think so. I mean, I think it, it, it changes our understanding that we're a nation of laws, not a nation of men, and that no person is above the law. Again, in some sense, the court has said that when it comes to civil lawsuits and people who want money damages, the president is above the law when the president is operating you know, in their official capacity. To say that you can't criminally prosecute, a president could commit a crime and just get away with it does seem to be a bridge too far. Now, again, part of it is how we're defining it. If we're saying that, you know, it's in the course of his official duties, but he broke the law, but it was kind of a necessary thing to do. Maybe it involves ordering an assassination or something like that. I don't know. Maybe there's some reasonable argument there. But, you know, the president just takes a bribe. And because he or she is the president, they can't be later prosecuted for it. It it's, it is, I think there's a reason why it has never been contemplated up until now that there would mm -hmm. be that civil immunity and criminal immunity are much different things. There are many public officials. I mean, police officers have what's called qualified immunity. Mm -hmm. It means they can't be sued if they reasonably thought they were following the law, even if they violated somebody's constitutional rights. So immunity from civil liability is not uncommon in our legal system. Immunity from criminal prosecution is very unusual. Yeah, I wanted to if get not non-existent. I wanted to get both of your reactions to, uh, you know, it was, it was very common to hear on the news about um, the appeals court case and the the questioning about well if the president had somebody you know a SEAL team member go and kill one of his political rivals mm -hmm. would he get immunity and I believe his attorney said well I would I would give a qualified yes to that or something mm -hmm. something along those lines yeah. I want to get both of your reaction to that kind of line of reason there, there was a there was a point at which the president's lawyer intentionally or unintentionally seemed to concede that you could be the president could be criminally prosecuted for something and then the judges kind of pounced on him and said well if you're conceding that then you've basically conceded your whole case mm -hmm. Laura I, I think yeah. this would yeah radically change certainly perceptions and, and if not just the powers too but but the, I think the points for teasing out here are why this is valuable to, for the courts to decide upon, because because it brings up a lot of questions that we don't presently have very clear answers on. Right? We have inclinations. We have um, some things we probably presuppose and assume. But you have the question of the person versus the office, the civil immunity versus criminal immunity, and I, and I think interesting here if. The courts were to decide and to say that the president does have immunity in this regard. The president is able to act in this certain way. When we talk about formal and informal powers of the president, I, this would really blow up, I believe, a, a lot of our expectations and what we've seen in the past in, in terms of what we thought presidents were allowed to do and what they wouldn't be allowed to do. And, and I always think in terms of impact on voters, elections, public opinion, I, I was naturally drawn to that. It's, it's what I love, but I, I do think it really matters, especially in a presidential election year. And when we look at low voter turnout, uh, we typically had had the last couple of election cycles have been very exciting. This one promises to be no shortage of excitement. But um, a lot of times voter dissatisfaction and people feeling that this system is rigged or it's um, it, it's not meaningful, it, it doesn't really reflect their interest. I, I have a fear that decisions that give the president more power than maybe most Americans think the president ought to have would make them disassociate more with the system, with the um, institutions, with the elections. And we know that our democracy is constantly under question. And that's probably actually healthy. You should always question something that you want to have faith in because that's how you strengthen your faith to a certain degree. But, but in terms of uh, political efficacy, we've seen decades of concern and question and judgment and disapproval of our institutions and the presidency being one of the most critical. I think that is part of what's at stake in this kind of decision. And, and if the Supreme Court were to take it up and to make a decision like that, I, I think the ramifications would be very widespread in terms of public opinion uh, and obviously the actual impact um, of the presidential power. A, a, a few years ago, after he left office, Richard Nixon gave a a famous interview or series of interviews to a TV host named David Frost. And and famously, there's a clip you can find on YouTube where President Nixon says with a straight face, 
well, if the president does it, it's not against the law. I, I mean, and that's been like almost a, seen as a punchline, seen as an example of a kind of absurdity of Nixon's, uh, you know, megalomaniacal view of himself and his powers. And, and I, when I introduce in my constitutional law class, we cover this issue of presidential privileges and immunities as the law has existed up until now. And I, I show that clip at the outset just as kind of a joke to get us started. And But that seems to be what we're contemplating here. Laura, it seems to me that you know, we we have our democracy is based on this this sort of balance of powers between the legislative, judicial, and executive branches, and it seems like if one branch of government is told that well, you have immunity from criminal offenses as well as as civil, that that would change things fundamentally. Is that correct? Oh, I absolutely, I absolutely think it would, um, and in part, I think what you're getting to is. So then shouldn't the other branches? Right, to, right. What, what makes you different being president than uh, a member of Congress, right? Where's your you have senatorial courtesy, very different from presidential uh, immunity or privilege. But I, I do think it would open a certain can of worms there. And, and to the point Steve made in terms of, well, if the president doesn't, it's not illegal. I do think there's a very paradoxical notion within that line. And we would all... Laugh and then cry because I think many people wouldn't share that opinion that Richard Nixon shared of himself and his power at the time. But when you think of that, the irony that an elected official, a public official, a public servant should be given special privileges, even though at the very same time, the juxtaposition in which they are representing the American public, they have fiduciary responsibilities um, to serve the American public well with their tax dollars. They are. They are given so much more responsibility, and I think many would argue should be, though maybe not always are, held to a higher standard of accountability because they are a representative. They are entrusted to represent us. I, I think that kind of entanglement, not just in terms of the separation of powers and checks and balances, and if you give one entity too much power, what do we do? How, where do we give power to the other entities? How do we make sure that it's balanced? I think even the idea of giving too much powers too many powers to elected leaders themselves. You know, within the purview of the Constitution and our interpretations now in 2024 of that, to me, that is very concerning. Um, it's certainly an interesting question, even if not concerning to one. But I, I think when we think of public servants, and that is what they are, they are public servants, that there is some level of um, privilege they ought to have, and they certainly have a high level of responsibility. But I don't think that those two things necessarily have to be at odds with another. And in fact, I think they should be considered in tandem in a way that we probably don't always do that. Maybe, maybe just to, to close this part out, I'd, I'd underscore once again that the, 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 the important difference, I think, between civil and, and criminal immunity. Actually, legislators do have a certain civil immunity. I mean, if I am a legislator and I commit an act of – I say something defamatory against somebody else while I'm giving a speech on the floor of the House or the Senate, I can't be sued for that. There is a legislative immunity stemming from the speech and debate clause of the Constitution, but that doesn't apply to criminal. It doesn't mean I can take a bribe. It doesn't apply to criminal acts. Prosecutors, you know, in many cases can't be sued even if they knowingly do something bad. A case I argued at the Supreme Court some years ago had to do with prosecutorial immunity. But again, civil immunities are not uncommon in our legal system. Criminal immunity is. George? So we have a question for Laura. Um, so regardless of the decision, will we continue to see this in future elections? Um, you know, or will Trump still have a dominant presence himself or through other candidates? Politi yes, politics I think question. so. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I, Donald Trump has been a very interesting candidate. Um, elected leader and now again candidate and I, I do think the question will continue to arise now I don't know if, if whatever the outcome is in terms of the November general election um, he's either elected or he's not he may not win the primaries although by all polling indicators it looks like he he's certainly leading he will win the Republican primaries Just question the general regardless of the outcome but he has been a very unique individual in American politics and on one hand, I think, well, would other people do all of these other things that would lead them to where Donald Trump is right now in his political career? Probably not. But each one of these questions, especially as we talk about it from a judicial sense and going through the court system, 
creates a new level of precedent and a new level of understanding and expectation of what the president or what a presidential candidate or what the former president is allowed to do. And and I will say specifically to Donald Trump's legacy, he did literally rewrite or lead to a, a rewriting, I should say, of textbooks in terms of our understanding of what presidential candidates look like and what presidents were able to do, even in an informal sense, what you could say, how you would behave, um, having had previous elected leadership background. And I think this is yet another way in which it is somewhat new territory, right? These are unnavigated waters, um, but they will create a precedent. And I, I think this is something that we'll look back on, regardless of whether or not we have candidates that look more like Donald Trump or other candidates in the future. I, I do think it is absolutely establishing those kind of not just legal precedents, but the political precedents, the things that we'll expect to see in terms of campaigns and the things that we will say are commonplace or, or unusual or happened once um, in, in terms of elections, too. And do you get a do you get a, a feeling that voters are losing faith or feeling like their votes no longer matter? Would you get would the would that get worse if it was deemed that presidents have immunity? This might be an obvious question. I I think that would matter in terms of the general election. So if we're talking about the American electorate as a whole, because then you have your Democrats, your Republicans, your Independents, your Agnostics, everybody in there, right? Uh, the best polling data we have right now is really focused on primaries because that's the really big question, and. So far, even with indictments, even with looming cases, right, we still don't have decisions in many areas, um, but you have Donald Trump leading handedly. And the most recent data I've seen for Iowa, because the caucuses are coming up next week, showed him with 54 percent leading Haley to 20 percent, who just, by the way, uh, surpassed Ron DeSantis at 17 percent. Mm -hmm. He had been the strong second, but still very far away. I, I don't know that it impacts the Republican party voter in the primaries, I do think it would have an impact in the general election. But in part of it, it's going to be what are the decisions, right? And how do the how do the voters respond to them? We've got just about 15 minutes to go in the program. So if you have a question for our panelists, Steve Sanders and Laura Wilson, you can call us at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. Or you can send your question to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Okay, I want to switch gears for a minute. And I want to talk about gun rights because there is an issue that's already been argued, right, Steve? And mm -hmm. I want you to talk about what is likely to happen in this case? And, and you can describe what the case yeah. is. So um, it, it wasn't until um, just a couple of decades ago that the Supreme Court sort of breathed life into the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment had always sort of been there, but nobody quite knew what it did or what it guaranteed. And the Supreme Court said it, it guarantees an individual right to keep and bear arms. But then the question becomes, what's the scope of that? There, there is no such thing as an absolute constitutional right. Um, there have to be some limits on it, some balancing. And so um, the court in its most recent statement, a case called Bruin, Bruin versus New York State Rifle and Pistol Association about a year and a half ago, um, laid down a very restrictive set of understandings that said basically the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms can only be infringed if a law is um, uh, uh, dates back to or is very similar to something deep in our history. If the people who passed the Second Amendment um, or the people who uh, uh, extended the Second Amendment to the states through the 14th Amendment would have understood, you know, this law to be okay, then it's okay. But if it's if not, then it's not. So this is this uh, provides a very cons a lot of constraint on what states can do. Okay, so um, t uh, many states have uh, uh, laws that say if you are under a d restraining order because you are alleged to have convict, uh, committed domestic violence. You can have a firearm taken away from you. Or if you're convicted of an act of domestic violence, a felony, you can be uh, barred from owning a weapon. Um, these laws are very common. They have typically applied to both violent and nonviolent felonies. So um, the Fifth Circuit, uh, out of in a case out of Texas last year, looked at this and said, you know, um, you know, back in the late 1700s or the mid 1800s, these domestic violence laws that disarmed you didn't exist. And so given the approach the Supreme Court has taken to the Second Amendment, we can't say that this law is constitutional. 
um, the guy's conviction is reversed. So this gets to the Supreme Court. It's been argued. It was argued in the fall. And I think it's fair to say that most people thought the Supreme Court was kind of embarrassed enough that, that its decision could mean this, that you couldn't disarm somebody convicted of a domestic violence felony, that they will find some way to go back and explain in a little, a little more clearly what they meant in the Bruin decision. But Second Amendment jurisprudence is, is another one of these areas that's kind of relatively new in our constitutional landscape, and the scope and the parameters are still being worked out. Um, this seemingly kind of crazy idea, although arguably consistent with what the Supreme Court said, that if it wasn't a crime in the at the time of the 14th Amendment or the time the Second Amendment was passed, it's not it can't be can't be something today you could disarm somebody for. That seems a little extreme. And I think even this conservative pro-gun rights Supreme Court is going to find a way to walk back that Fifth Circuit Texas decision. But We'll see what they say. It's called the Rahimi case, United States versus Rahimi. Okay. And Laura, abortion has been obviously was a was a huge case uh, recently in the Supreme Court. It's com- main, it continues to be a huge political issue as well as a case uh, is before the Supreme Court this year. Could you describe that case and talk about wh- how you think that case might have ramifications politically? Yeah. So the the big cases in terms of abortion really involve mifepristone, um, which was approved by the FDA two decades ago, um, but can be used for early stage abortions. And, and if we go back, so you have the 1973 decision in terms of Roe versus Wade um, overturned in 2022 by Dodd. Um, Dodd versus Jackson, the question that the Supreme Court took up in that decision was saying whether or not the federal government had the right. It was a your classic state right versus federal government and the Supreme Court ultimately deciding that abortion should be a state's rights issue. Well, this comes from a group of doctors in Texas that are challenging the FDA, of course, which is a federal organization, a federal agency, um, and their approval of the mythopristone drug. Um, and as recently as December, right, this case has been um, been discussed in terms of the question of legality. Um, and right now, that's essentially what's at stake as the justice is going to review that lower court ruling, whether or not there's that this drug could be legal and used for that. But it's really important. It's not just Texas in, in terms of what's at question here, but over 25 states Um, ultimately outlawed abortion after the Dobbs versus Jackson decision. And you're talking about we're not even (coughs) two years from that. So it's really a question in terms of what this means uh, for states across the country, certainly in terms of abortion access or a question of legality there. Um, and, And then in this case in particular, because you're talking about medicine that has also been used for other things, right? What kind of authority, what kind of, um, what kind of, ability does the federal government have in terms of the FDA to say that this is accessible or legal, legal, excuse me, and and how does that interact with the policy? So I think this is a huge case um, and certainly one obviously we'll be watching very closely. In this, um, the abortion case the Supreme Court has taken, there's also um, a really front and center, uh, an arguably broader legal question, and that is who has the right to bring a lawsuit over uh, over uh, a federal question like this. So it, it's always been the case that just because you think the federal government is viol- the FDA violated the law or the federal government's doing something unconstitutional, you can't just sue. We don't have citizen suits over that. You have to show that you have some kind of the the lingo is an an, an actual or imminent injury that is concrete and particular to you, that you actually have some personal stake, that you are being injured by the operation of this illegal FDA action or unconstitutional law or whatever. So the, the people challenging the, um, the, the, the approval of, of the abortion drug are a group of doctors who say, you know, in theory, there might be a situation where someone would suffer a complication from these drugs, and we might, one of us might be on duty in an emergency room and might be required to perform an abortion on the spot, and that would violate our moral conscience. Um, these are very safe drugs. Uh, you know, it, this is an extremely attenuated and simply sp- 
arguably speculative set of circumstances as to like how one of these doctors who doesn't like the drug and doesn't like what the FDA did could somehow end up finding themselves in the position of having to do something as a result of this drug being legal that violated their conscience. It's, it's a very attenuated <clears throat> chain of events. So this case will also give us an opportunity to see that that will apply in other contexts too. Just how malleable is this idea of you have to have an injury to you before you can file a federal lawsuit? I have two-part question for Laura about this issue of abortion. And the first part is how significant is the issue going to be in this year's uh, presidential election and even state and local elections? I think it'll be very significant. Um, And part of it, of course, is how candidates use the issue, uh, how they choose to employ it, and then how voters respond. But if if we went back to 2022 in the congressional midterms, you might recall before that election, and really before the Dobbs versus Jackson decision, which was in the summer, but in the spring, talking about how this was anticipated to be a red wave which is exactly what you would expect because the Democrats had control in 2020. That was when President Joe Biden won office over former President Donald Trump. So Democrats take back the White House. And so typically the pendulum for the party swings back and forth. So if 2020 was good for Democrats, we expected 2022 to be good for Republicans. And I think the Dobbs versus Jackson decision single-handedly upended that because all of a sudden you had a lot of very angry liberal voters that were concerned about this single issue and were driven out to the polls. And you still had Republican successes, but it was much less of a red wave, so to speak, more of a a red trickle. Now, we're talking about still two years from that in 2024. um, But the policies, if anything, have changed in a way that, again, if you're talking about liberal voters would be more upset and more angered with. And typically when we look at voter motivation, being complacent and happy and comfortable with what's going on is not gonna motivate people to turn out to the polls in the same way that either exuberance and excitement or anger and rage will. And so I imagine there are a lot of candidates that are gonna use this to their advantage. I don't know necessarily in Indiana how well it plays out because we're a relatively conservative state and the Republicans tend to dominate in statewide and our congressional offices. But across the nation, I have no doubt this will still be a major issue and combine that in terms of immigration, which is a hot topic right now, and maybe even questions in terms of the economy. I think those will be the big talking points for candidates this spring and fall. My second part of my question for you is that, you know, abortion has become, it's a state's rights argument, right? So states get to decide on abortion, yet states don't have the same, voters in states don't have the same ability to decide. Ohio was able to get a ballot measure to say, we think that abortion should be legal in the state of Ohio. Indiana voters don't have any such um, ability to do that. How, How can you... I guess I just want your reaction to that, that some states, states have different kinds of ways to discuss these issues where, you know, lawmakers can do it in one state, voters actually have an opportunity to weigh in in other states. Yeah, I I think it's fascinating because this is a difference in terms of state constitutions and how much our founding fathers in this state really trusted and want to give authority to voters. So you're talking about initiatives and referendums, which are two types of direct democracy. um, And those are mechanisms that some states offer voters where you can bypass your state legislature to put an issue on the ballot, and that's the initiative process, right? And then the referendum is giving it to the voters to vote upon. This was a topic of interest in Indiana in the summer of 2022, after the Dobbs decision, because you remember our state legislature came back, the governor had already called them into a special session in July, really dealing with the excess general revenue surplus we had. And then, of course, you had Dobbs versus Jackson. They decided to go ahead and throw in the abortion issue and decide both of those issues over that special summer session. But there were calls, probably most notably from Democratic leadership, saying, hey, we should take this to voters. Hey, we should ask the voters. There's no mechanism in the Indiana State Constitution of 1851 that requires that, that makes that an option. 
Um, and it's not to say we couldn't change the state constitution, but it does highlight the differences of states in terms of their policies. And there are states where you have recalls, referendums, initiatives, lots of different ways for voters to have a direct say in terms of policy. And in Indiana, we don't offer those opportunities. You, you're really, your say in policy is your say in elected leadership. And that's every two years when you vote on your representatives um, and in your executive offices every other two years um, in terms of the state. So it's, it's simply something we don't have here in Indiana, but you can see how it operates and, and really what it looks like in neighboring states, like, as you mentioned, to the east, Ohio. The only thing I might add is I, I think, you know, your your taste or approval for direct democracy kind of depends on the issue. And, and I think very few people are consistent on this. So in the 1990s, Republicans across the country very effectively used these direct democracy processes to, um, you know, kind of ram through laws block, attempting to block same-sex marriage. In Indiana, there were efforts to amend the state constitution to prevent same-sex marriage. Those never succeeded in part because even to amend the constitution in Indiana, it is such a difficult process. Now, of course, the same social conservatives who, you know, loved the direct democracy process when it was being used to mobilize people against same-sex marriage don't like it because it's being used to mobilize people in favor of abortion rights. Okay. Laura, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about the importance of the Iowa caucuses and then New Hampshire. I mean, we, I think every four years we say, wow, we've got these small states with an outsized impact on what's going to happen in these presidential um, campaigns. Why is it that way? <laughs> well, uh, that's probably a much longer explanation okay. than we have time left in the show. But I, I would say I appreciate being able to talk about this because the, the timing has always been a question mark. You've also heard recently, especially the Democratic Party, say we should push South Carolina up closer because to your point, Iowa and New Hampshire do not look like the larger American population. And to be fair, there's no state that is absolutely perfectly distributed, as is the country. Um, but we do have these early states that are going to help us decide in terms of what candidates um, will be representing the party, and especially for Republicans, as it seems Joe Biden is, is naturally going to be the Democratic nominee. I think this does bring into question what we saw two cycles ago, eight years ago, back in 2016, um, in terms of the order of the states. Right now, Donald Trump is leading very handedly in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. Nikki Haley, as I mentioned earlier in the show, um, is starting to surpass DeSantis. And obviously, she's a South Carolina native, so we would expect to do well there. Um, but many of these states are winner-take-all, so it doesn't matter if you come in second. And it doesn't matter if you don't win a majority. We saw that happen in 2016, and it was one of the ways in which Donald Trump was very easily able to be effective early in the election cycle because of the winner-take-all. So I, I think it does bring into question not just how the parties do their systems in terms of the winner-take-all for Republicans, whereas it's a little bit more proportionate for the Democrats for delegate distribution after the primary or caucus okay. cycle. Yeah. We're going oh, to have also to, just the yeah, we're going to have to cut it off. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Laura Wilson, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Indianapolis. And Steve Sanders has been here, Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, Professor of Law and Val Nolan Faculty Fellow for the IU Mauer School of Law. For George Hale, our co-host today, Mike Paskash, our engineer, and Nathan Moore, our producer, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. <laughs>